5 today, as we continue through Revelation. Um, Last week, chapter 4, we looked at, uh, after everything concerning the church, chapters 1 through 3, before the tribulation begins, before John sees the events of the tribulation, he is literally taken up, raptured, we talked about the importance of the timing and the order of that, and he's brought into heaven where he describes what he sees and the events that are taking place there. Remember that Revelation takes uh, two viewpoints. So we look at part of it and we're given this is what's happening in heaven. And then it will cut to what's happening on earth. Right. And it switches back and forth. But right now, chapters really four through most of chapter six, it's what's taking place in heaven. And specifically within the throne room of God. And so when John is brought there, he is, there's one thing that is pointed out to him. While he could look at, and he does to some degree, he looks at the, the seraphim and he looks at the elders and other things. But the first thing that he states is that there is a throne set in heaven. And I tell you what, I said this last week, that is my new mantra with all of the chaos and craziness. And, and it's even amped up since last Sunday, right? And over and over again, the Lord keeps bringing me back to there is a throne set in heaven, right? Chapter 5 goes right along with that truth. In fact, adds to it, builds upon it, that while we are here in this crazy world, and it's going to get crazier. Not only is there a throne in, set in heaven, but as we'll see today, uh, there is one who is worthy. The focus remains or begins again of the throne in heaven in chapter 5. And we're going to see some things, uh, events that have a very old history in mankind, but being brought in to... Uh, have things made right. And that's really one point of the tribulation. It's not the only point. We've talked about really the, if you want to make a main point of the great tribulation, it's for the nation of Israel. It, that God has set aside this time to set his focus upon Israel, to bring them to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. But he's going to be doing a lot of other things as well. And one of them is bringing mankind, all of mankind, to a point of decision. Right now, you can talk to people all over the world, and a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I'm sure, Jesus is good, and, and this is good, and that's good. And, and even people within church will have a very kind of gray area of salvation. That will all be taken away in the tribulation. There will be no more gray area. Everyone will be brought to a point of decision of who Jesus is. And these things will be, along with other things, will be made right. Uh, We made a a big mess of the world and continue to uh, since the very beginning. And we're going to see that as we we get into chapter 5. So let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, as always, we want to hear from you. We want to understand and receive your word that we would be changed by it, that we would not 
turn it to our opinion or somehow get it to align with what we want. But Lord, you would have your way in us and that you would have your way in this church. We submit ourselves to you and just uh, have your way. We pray again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Chapter 5, verse 1. So then I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scrolls or to look at it. And so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Again, the focus on God the Father being on the throne. And in his right hand, John says that he sees a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, this isn't a part of our culture. So I think a lot of times we'll read this and we're like, well, that sounds very mysterious, mystical. You know, what, what we think of maybe like a, a magic scroll or something. But John, in his day, he knew exactly what this was. And it was, there was no question in his mind about what this scroll was all about. Um, and to really understand it, we're going to have to go back. And we've talked about this before, that Revelation really makes sense because of the Old Testament. That without the Old Testament, it's, it's just guesswork. But by going back to the Old Testament, it gives us clarity of uh, everything. So in this case, um, you don't have to turn there. But in Numbers 26, God divides up the promised land. And, and the way he did it and why he did it is important. Okay, So it was divided up by clans and tribes and then down to families. And that each family was given a, a plot of land that was theirs. And while you could sell it within the family or within your tribe, it would always return to you. You're basically leasing it out. That way you always had property, you always had land to pass down to the next generation could never be sold out from underneath him. It was their inheritance, right? And again, the idea that the title deed was always in your possession, but you could lease out the land, right? And they'd lease it out for seven years. So actually it would be, they'd lease it for six years, and then at some point during the seventh year, it would return to the owner. A great example of this, if you want to jot this down and take a look at it, is uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, where Jeremiah basically leases the land from an uncle. And it goes through this process, right? Um, now, again, this sounds like a huge sidetrack, 
But when, what would take place is they would take the title deed to that land that was being leased, and they would roll it up, and they'd seal it with seven seals. One seal for every year, right? And when those seven years were up, or in the seventh year when the land was reclaimed by the owner, he would take it, break the seven seals, and have full authority over the land again. Okay? So that is what we're seeing here. Now, who's had the right or the lease on the earth? The title deed to the earth is what the Lord is holding, what God is holding upon his throne. You remember back in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that all dominion was given to mankind, that all dominion was given to Adam. And by chapter 3, he hands that title deed over or his right to it, over to the enemy. And from that point on, we have been in a fallen state. All mankind. And so, John knows what this is. That God is holding the title deed of the earth, which directly affects all of mankind. And that's why that question is so important. is Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who's able to reclaim the title deed to the earth? And I picture, you know, if you just read over it, it sounds pretty fast what takes place. I picture a very long silence in heaven after that question. And that somehow it is determined that no one throughout all of human history, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, the idea is not now, not in the past, not in the future, no one ever is found worthy. And this is why John begins to weep. It's because it means that if, if nobody takes that scroll, if nobody looses these seals, that mankind will continue in its downward spiral of sickness and sin and death without hope of ever breaking out of it. And John's heart breaks at the idea of that being true. In fact, he says that he doesn't just weep. John says, I wept much. Man, that he was just in this broken state to realize nobody can open that scroll. Nobody can reclaim earth and save mankind. Now, again, we're not talking about salvation somehow being put on hold. We're talking about that mankind itself will just continue this downward spiral that we're in right now, that we're witnessing, that it's just going to get worse and worse. And the idea that, that that won't ever come to an end, John's just laid low by the whole thing. And then in verse 5, one of the elders comes to him. And verse 5 just says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Now, there's a couple things, and we're going to take a couple rabbit trails on purpose today, um, because there's actually some really hard questions that are getting answered here, that even in just this little, the beginning part of chapter 5, questions that people ask fairly commonly are being dealt with. One of them is, is what's wrong with the world today? What, why, why do we see so much war and difficulty and, and famine and sickness and all of these things? What's wrong with our world? And, and these things are universal in mankind. You know, we could look at it and go, well, we could see why things are crazy in the United States right now. And we could 
come up with all our reasons why. But you can look at any group of people, no matter how isolated they are, and they still deal with sin. There was a, a, one of the teachers in the Bible college that I went to. Uh, he would go on these crazy uh, short-term mission trips where they would seek out unreached people groups. And, and he said most of his time was just getting there, right? And so he and this other, uh, they found a translator for this tribe, and I believe it was actually in Africa where he was at. And they go to this tribe, and they're like, okay, so we're going to spend a week giving these guys uh, the Ten Commandments. And then after that, we're going to uh, bring in the good news of Jesus. And so the, the tribe had gathered around. They wanted to hear what these guys had to say. And, and so uh, his name was John. And John, you know, they're sharing the gospel, and, and they're sharing the Ten Commandments. But they got this weird response that every time they would teach on one of the commandments, everyone's kind of like, Okay. And they got up to, thou shalt not commit murder. And finally, the, the village elder stops them. And he goes, we know this already. We know we shouldn't steal. We know we shouldn't lie. We know we shouldn't murder. Tell us how to stop. Right? Everybody deals with sin. And the idea that nobody can stop that downward spiral, again, breaks John's heart. And, and the question of what's wrong with the people today is that the fall happened in the Garden of Eden. That, that from that point, mankind's been in this downward spiral. And people, you know, everybody gives Adam and Eve a pretty hard time, especially Adam. Oh, I wouldn't have done it if I was there. Oh, yes, you would have. We all would have, right? Adam and Eve were our best representatives, the, the pinnacle of mankind, believe it or not. And if they couldn't do it, either could we. And anybody that questions that, the only thing I have to say is, have you ever done something you knew you shouldn't? Boom, there it is. That's all it took. That is our sin nature. That is us using our free will to do what we already know is wrong. And, and as, a, as a, the entire mankind, again, no matter where we're located or how we're raised, we choose sin over God again and again. This is what's wrong with mankind. And that every sin carries with it natural consequences and supernatural consequences that cannot be avoided. And because of the earth, all creation groans for the day where they are redeemed, where suddenly this downward spiral comes to an end. Again, this is what John is, is weeping about, the idea that it won't. Now, the other thing that comes out here that's so important, and we've talked about this in a lot of different places, but I think this is a great scripture, is people say, well, Jesus is just like every teacher. Jesus talks about love. He talks about forgiveness. It's the same thing everyone talks about. What makes Jesus different? Because no matter who they were or what they taught or what they sacrificed, they were not, are not worthy to take the scroll. They're just like us. They're sinners just like us. They owe a debt just like us. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth or throughout all of mankind was found worthy. Only one, Jesus. Only he is the one that came to pay for our sin, rescue us from ourselves, grant us forgiveness and eternal life through him. Only one. 
If somebody is just looking for a way to live, there's lots of teachers out there that will tell us how to live. But only Jesus tells us how to live forever. And then made the way that we can. He made a way where there was none. Now, Revelation chapter 1, we get this picture of Jesus in his power and his, in his deity, right? That John just tries to describe to us, and we've seen that brought up through chapters 1 through 3, the Alpha and the Omega, right? God and, and Jesus and all of his godhood. But I like here that he is identified by his earthly ministry and his earthly life. That the elder says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah connects him to, to Israel and to the tribe of Judah and the root of David, that he is the one who has prevailed and is worthy to open the scroll. Um, worthy because he's God. Worthy because he has done all of this for us. Now, the other thing I find interesting here is that the elder tells him, look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John, I don't know if he turns, but he turns his attention expecting to see a lion. And instead he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. <laughs> and to me, it's the true picture of his power. I'm on a lion is powerful. And we think of that, and the, and the idea of being next to an actual lion. I don't know if you guys have ever been by, by a big cat. It is terrifying. But even greater is Jesus' sacrifice as the lamb. This is the, this is the display of power, though most would not see it, that he has been slain, the perfect sacrifice for us. And this is how he has prevailed. Overcoming sin and death and paying the price of all mankind. What he went through in order to win the perfect victory. But it's also like a picture that's double-sided, right? Or has a two-edged sword to it. Because you're, you, while you see the beauty of sacrifice upon the cross, you're also reminded of the ugliness of it. He's not, he's not a lamb... In, in its perfection, he is a lamb that has been slain and reminded of why he was slain. Now, not just any lamb, not just some ordinary lamb. He has seven eyes and seven horns. Um, and we've talked about this again. We're told here that the seven eyes and seven horns represent the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Um, this is phrase has been used a couple different times already, and what it's a reference to is the Holy Spirit and his seven different ministries. So it isn't seven individual spirits, it's the Holy Spirit in his seven ministries. And, and I think there's some other things that are being said here as well. The, uh, scripturally, the picture of the eyes means all-seeing, all-knowing. And a horn is a picture of power. So again, all-powerful. Seven is that number of absolute completion, absolute perfection and, and, and completion. And Jesus is, is all of these things, but it's also connected to his relationship with the Holy Spirit as well. And then verse 7 says, And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. All right, verse 8. 
It says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The title deed to the earth is received by the Lamb of God. And He is the only one who can open it. He's the only one that can receive it, read it. And when he does, when he takes it from God's hand, an amazing worship service breaks out in heaven. Because this is the moment, literally the moment, they've all been waiting for. This is where everything changes. This is where, this is the beginning of the end. Where the earth and all that are in it, are brought back to a right place where that gray area is removed and everybody has to decide this is the beginning of it all. Since that very first moment in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell, imagine, you know, not for the elders, but for the angels, for certainly for the Lord himself. From that moment when Adam fell, imagine all of the heartbreaking chaos that has taken place since then. Wars and famine and just just horrible events throughout all of mankind, the entire world, the people that he created out of love to have that relationship with, turning their back on him again and again and again. And after all of that history and all of that time, this is the moment they've been waiting for. The other thing I find so cool, and it just... I don't fully understand it all, but it just blows me away trying to wrap my mind around it. Is that through all of that difficulty, and even what we've seen in our own life and what we've seen recently, those prayers of, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, the world that we're in, the heartache that that we see, Lord, we want your return. You know, each one of those prayers counts. And each one of those prayers are what they're talking about when it says the elders held 24 of these bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It doesn't mean every prayer ever prayed. It means every prayer that was pointing towards this moment. So every time you prayed, Lord, please come back. Lord, make things right. Lord, take us home. That prayer is kept in that precious place for this very moment. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lord. Again, this isn't some play-acting thing that just happens. They're not running off a script. They're overwhelmed with just worship. For the events that are taking place right there in heaven, they have no choice. They just fall down before the Lord. And these 24 elders begin to sing a new song. And the idea of that, this is a song that's never been sang before. In the history of heaven, this song has never been sung. 
It was, it was saved for this moment. And they begin to sing this song. Um, and we talked about these 24 elders a little bit last week. There's a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas out there. Um, people love to argue about who these 24 elders might be. The fact is, nobody knows. But what we do know is important. Uh, we know that they are not angels. They're people. Because here it says that they were saved. In verse 9 it says, You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. These are people that have been saved by Jesus Christ. Um, and again, as we look at this, I mean, it's hard to picture how this whole worship service is taking place in heaven. But there's also a, a good question that gets answered here. And again, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's an important one. There's a teaching out there, an idea, and it's, it's, not, a, it's not a salvation issue. So if you hold this idea, that's fine. I have no problem with it, but I don't think it, it's scripturally accurate. And the idea is this, that when a person dies, that their soul goes into like cold storage, right? And it's called a soul sleep, that, that the person, once they die, they don't go to be with the Lord right away, that they just kind of get put in this unconscious state, they're unaware of anything that's happening, and that they will be risen up at the rapture. And there's some reason for people to think that. And uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is, is probably one of the big ones. Uh, verse 16 where it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so from that idea, people will say, well, see, then the souls are all kept and when the trumpet is blown and the Lord descends, there's going to be like this explosion of souls up out of the ground. And, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. Um, that doesn't quite fit with Scripture. And here we are. Remember, we're, we're the, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, as we've talked about, begins in chapter 6. But we're in chapter 5. So the rapture hasn't taken place yet, and yet here's these 24 elders, people redeemed from the earth by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they're very much aware of what's going on. Their souls are not sleeping. They're wide awake and in heaven. Um, there hasn't been a rapture yet. There hasn't been the tribulation yet. And these 24 elders speak of a, a group that's far beyond themselves, redeemed us out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. So they're not just talking about that maybe they're the special few that didn't get put into cold storage. That a much larger group, right? Now, again, the idea that people are having some sort of soul sleep, it's not a huge deal. If somebody wants to hold that idea, I'm cool with that. Go right ahead. Um, but I think the confusion is, is what's happening when it talks about that those, the dead in Christ will rise first. Anybody who is a, in Christ is part of the first resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the, I am the resurrection, right? And so when we die, we are entering in to that resurrection. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we find that all of those who have died and gone before 
are in the process of rising now. That was really the question that the Thessalonians had is, wait a second, if we're raptured, what happens to the people that died before, right? Paul was answering that. They're already there. They've risen ahead of us. We who are alive and remain will be caught up, right? So they're in the process of rising, and we are looking for the rapture. So again, rabbit trail, but I thought it was an interesting one worth bringing up. All right, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth And such that are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, and the Lamb, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. All of heaven... And all of creation have waited for this moment. And I find it interesting because Scripture mentions this in a couple different places. I think this is probably the clearest one that talks about even the animals of the earth know the Lord and cry out to be redeemed. Isn't that crazy? And it's funny because I remember seeing, I've seen a couple different documentaries and stuff and people that are like really into, I don't know, sea creatures and saving whales and all of that. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could just talk to those whales and the whales could just tell us all the secrets they have? And I think it's funny because the whale would say, you need Jesus. <laughs> like if they finally found a way, you know, and, and here's what the whales want us all to know. The whales said, we need Jesus. We need to get saved. Because here it says that every creature, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, just everything, is crying out, blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Man, powerful. Like I said, this is the moment everyone, everything has been waiting for. And I think, again, it is a good reminder to us of where things of this life should fall in priority. Because... Again, I can, I can look at the news, and I can look at the media, and I can look at events that are taking place, and man, it just churns me up. And I get angry and frustrated, and I look at the injustice of things, and man, I just want to rail on with everybody else about what's wrong with this world and what's wrong with this country. But I'm brought back to, there is a throne set in heaven, and there is only one worthy to open that scroll. And when I remember that, when I come back to that, then the chaos of this life seems so much smaller. Because as great as our country is, and I love our country, I think it's the greatest country that's ever existed in the world, but it will fall and fade and be forgotten like it never existed. And even as we look in Revelation, there is not one mention of the United States. 
As, as important as we think it is, as, as a great of an influence as we've had on the world, and it has been great. We've sent out more missionaries, and the, the gospel has been preached from this nation like never before. But there is no mention of us here. Again, it puts us into perspective. And it should turn our eyes toward heaven. Going, this is the day that I want to wait for. This is the event I want to look to. And again, these, these events that are happening here in chapter 5 are all in heaven and have not affected earth yet. So, so here's a crazy thought. That scene that we just read about could be taking place right now in heaven. And we would be unaware of it all. But, but thinking about that, taking that in, again, it puts my perspective correct with the things of this life. Man, the only one is worthy to take the scroll. No one else was found. No king, no priest, no government, no president. Only Jesus Christ himself. And again, that moment could be happening at this very time. And on top of all of that, it is only Jesus who was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood to make us kings and priests to God. Again, we've talked about that before, but for us to take in what that means, that in the Old Testament, there was never a priest who was also a king or vice versa. You had priests and you had kings. And the one king that attempted to do the job of a priest was struck down with leprosy. And so the idea that not only has he redeemed us, he's redeemed us and given us a place that was never given to anybody else, of priests and kings to him, to stand with him, to rule with him. And again, it just brings us back to, Lord, only you are worthy. Your throne is set in heaven. It will never be shaken. It will never be moved. Nothing, not one event that ever happens here on earth will shake the throne of God. And that's where we need to place our hope. And that's where we need to place our focus. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you are able to open the scroll. That you are even now in the process of bringing this age of man full of chaos and heartbreak to an end, that we can trust in you, we can trust in your timing. And Lord, that even in the midst of hard times, we can look to you, to your throne, and to who you are and place our trust completely in you. Lord, use us while we're here. Shine through our lives. Give us words to the lost that we would see heaven grow. We would see souls saved. That while we're here, we would make good use of our time and share the love that you have for us with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.